Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Professor Rebecca Donova. Rebecca is Demetrius Professor of Early Christianity in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She teaches courses on the religions of ancient Greece and Rome and ancient Egypt too. Readers of WHE will know Rebecca from her articles there, but she's also written a number of books, contributed chapters to others, and is a frequent contributor of book reviews on the ancient world for the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature. Rebecca was also a recipient of the Students' Choice Awards in 2014 and 2015. So I have to ask also, first question, what made you choose this field of study? Was it something that you were always interested in, early Christianity? I was always interested in history. I always wanted to know, how did we get from A to B? Where did things start? I do semester-long courses as well on major topics, like I do a whole semester on the history of martyrdom in the Western religions. I just finished th this semester. It's a very depressing course. <laughs> and we didn't need any books. We used headlines on the history of evil in, the, in Western religions. Yeah, you have to sort of keep them laughing as you go through it. Because <laughs> there's a lot of evil yeah. out there. But I... I, I always tell my students, if I could do science or math, I would have been an archaeologist. But I can't. Do, I never could do science or math. And so what happened was um, I was always interested in history. I was always interested in asking questions, never getting any answers. And I had a Protestant aunt that used to make me try to read the Bible. But I'd be in the back checking through the maps saying, I'm going to find those four rivers in Eden someday, you know. And what happened was I have a very, very supportive husband. And so on our own, we did our own archaeological dig trips all through the Middle East and just did stuff on our own. And then, like I said, when I was about 40, I discovered this kind of new discipline called religious studies. And that's when I decided to go for my doctorate in that. And in fact, I thought, I'm never, ever, ever going to work on the Gospels. I don't want to do theology. Well, religious studies doesn't really, it's not that we don't care if God exists. What we care about is why certain people in the ancient world thought he did, because that's the only evidence that we have. And I ended up doing a dissertation on Luke-Acts. And again, I, I have, I just, I found my calling. I just love showing the connections between the ancient world and the modern world. For instance, when I was a kid, I used to ask people all the time, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if God is God, didn't, you know, couldn't he have a plan B? Did he have to suffer? <laughs> and no one could give me an answer, you know, and now I, I sort of know it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with the way the early Christians presented the story. And again, most Christians, you know, World religions, most Hindus, Muslims, they learn all about their history. Christians learn formulas. You know, in, in my class on the early church, I'll say, you know, what's the Trinity? And they can immediately answer, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And I'll say, yeah, but what does it mean? What's the point? What's the background? And it's not their fault. They're not taught that. You know, and then once we can go through it, and then there's always a better understanding. And then what you can judge as a modern person how much of that is viable? How much of it still works? And that's why we can learn so much from ancient culture. And the fact that the ancient world, culture, society, 
is never, there was never any separate category called religion. There wasn't even a word for religion. You know, if you, you'd have to stop somebody and say, what customs do you live by? And they would say the customs of our ancestors. And that meant everything in everyday life. And we've only recently, um, this is like modern to me, you know, the Renaissance yeah. and, the, and, and the Enlightenment, we've only began to, you know, to question some of that. It's, you cannot ever, ever divorce us from society. And we think today we live in a modern secular world. It's, we just have different words for it. Now we call it family values instead of religion. But the ideas are still embedded there. And that's why, you know, and, and, it's, and it's such a great journey of discovery for people to find out, you know, why do we think these things? Why, where did this stuff come from? And that's the fun we have with it. And we do have fun. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So when, when you went traveling around the Middle East, whereabouts did you go to? I've been to Israel four times, Italy 10 times. I can't wait to go back. I, I hope Italy opens up. And what happened was the University of Pittsburgh is very strange. It's a research one university, but their history department starts with modern Europe. And so, and the classics department only teaches like myth and literature. And so I thought, well, why don't we have any courses on ancient history? And so if a student wants ancient history, that's why they take mine, okay? Sometimes I've had 500 students a year because, you know, then it can count for, you know, a gen ed. But the curiosity is there, okay? So I traveled around all of these places on my own, and I decided to branch out. And that's how I ended up doing actually a textbook on Greek and Roman religion, even though I'm not trained in classics, but I had mm -hmm. to learn. And that's when I decided to also offer a course. What happened was several years ago when Tut, the last time Tut was touring America, I thought, you know, a research one unit, somebody should be teaching something on Egypt. And so I created a course on the religions of ancient Egypt. So I've been to Egypt four times. I absolutely love it. And what, ha what I do in this course is our local, we have a Carnegie, you know, natural science museum here. And they had some of the earliest relics, you know, from Egypt, Andrew Carnegie. The thing is, it's not that very good at teaching visitors. And so what this course does on ancient Egypt is that they create virtual brand new Egyptian exhibits for the museum. And that's where they have to go in then and learn all about the culture and, you know, the, the whole background of Egypt is just fascinating. We have a lot of questions for you today so let's yes, I, some of them will take a whole semester to answer <laughs> that's okay i was going to ask you how much time have you got you haven't got anything on the rest of the day have you you're, you're here for us so okay let's jump right in with one from jonathan chicken who teaches history at the web school in tennessee and he writes i sometimes teach christianity as a syncretic religion which blends judaism and hellenistic philosophies and mystery religion what are your thoughts on that designation? Is it fair? Is it too dismissive of what is new or unique about early Christianity? Is there a different approach to understanding it which might be better? Okay, so that everyone can be on the same page. Syncretism, uh, you have to love how academics always want to make up new words, okay? New jargon for the discipline. Syncretism simply means seen, you know, together kind of things like synoptic seen together. What it means is that culture societies layer 
ideas and concepts. Syncretism is one of the elements when we talk about Alexander when he conquered the Middle East. Alexander was proud of being a Greek. He brought Greek language, thinking, philosophy, religion, and everything else. But he was very smart. If you conquer a country and you don't want future rebellion, you don't diss their gods. You layer it, okay? And so as conqueror, he literally had the right to walk into a temple and totally destroy the local god. But instead, he sort of went in and said, you know, took a look at the statue and said, oh, so you worship George. Well, hey, you know what? If we put a spear in his hand, a thunderbolt, you've been worshiping Zeus all along and didn't know it. From now on, we're going to call him Zeus George. And everybody wins. You get to keep your old ancestral customs, but you also pick up Alexander's God, who must be powerful. Look what Alexander did. And so we see this in that whole, what we call the Hellenistic period from about 300 BCE on. And again, because all religious ideas are also cultural, you get these blendings. You, you get layers and layers. Nobody in the ancient world threw anything out. They really knew how to recycle. Okay. And so you, you begin to get these various layers of it. And then what you study is how do the layers function and work? How does it still continue to work with that? And one of the reasons in my field we do this is because Christianity is going to absorb not only ancient Judaism, but Greco-Roman culture and Greco-Roman religions. They're going to borrow so much of those elements that go into this kind of layering. So what he's talking about is also the, there's an area of, of the study of ancient culture. It's not for the faint of heart. And it's because the one thing you have to remember is we only have like 5% represented. The educated people are the only ones writing. We have no idea what people were doing on the ground, <laughs> okay? So we have these writings, but they were all educated in schools of philosophy. And so you have to also take those elements into account. And so you get this nice kind of layer. So what he's doing is, is you know, is perfectly fine with that. Fantastic. I'm sure he'll be pleased to know that. Okay, now Katie <laughs> asks, why is there such a discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Okay, here's the problem. Okay, and it, it's become a, it's a, become almost a cultural uh, Christian element. You You hear the phrase, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. That actually was coined by a second century church father who was actually a Gnostic Christian. He, he was eventually ruled a heretic. The way you approach this is it tells us nothing about God. Or as I often tell my students, how do you prove that? You can't. It's, that's a faith you know, concept. It tells us a lot about the writers of these books. So when you see the God of Israel, you know, smiting the Canaanite. People aren't aware the God in the book of Joshua and Judges, God is the one who invented genocide against the Canaanites. But it's because these men, everybody in the ancient world wanted their God or gods to be warrior kings, to have all of this power to rule over the others. And so they literally adopt those same ideas. So they are presenting the God they want at the time. And what you have to do is always look at the background and context of each biblical book. And it tells you a lot about what's going on, 
if they're under siege a lot, you know. And so that's when the details begin to come out. Everything is, I always, my favorite saying is, context is content. And so once you know the context, okay, and then when you get to the New Testament, keep in mind, the Jews have a God of love. They're, They're all through the Jewish scriptures. God is always rescuing Israel and sending rains upon the land and all of that. They have that too. It's just that once you get into the polemics, when Christianity begins to separate from Judaism, there's a lot of what we call fake news articles out there, okay? And they're, they're positioning themselves against all of the bad things that they no longer want to absorb. But again, each book then has to, you have to look at the background of it. When did Christianity start diverging from Judaism? Easter Monday morning. <laughs> no. <laughs> Officially, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm right now in the middle of working on a new article for the encyclopedia, The Separation of Christianity from Judaism. It begins actually in the Gospels uh, with the story of, of the Jewish trials against Jesus, which are historically a mess, by the way. But there was a reason Mark wrote it that way. And it's the second century church fathers. What's happening is that after the the reign of Domitian, when Rome started persecuting Christians because they refused to participate in the imperial cults, that's when these church fathers start their writings. They're famously called adversos literature. They are literature against an adversary, and in this case, it's the Jews. What they're doing is writing to Roman emperors saying, why can't we have the same exemptions? Jews were exempted from state cults since the time of Julius Caesar. That's how he paid off his Jewish mercenaries in the East. And of all the people in the empire, the Jews were allowed to live with their ancestral customs. That's what you and I called religion. Christians wanted the same exemption. And so what they're going to argue is that we are, in fact, the true Jews. And that when Titus destroyed their temple in the year 70, that's because God was punishing the Jews. And we are now the new covenant. That's how they get the names Old Covenant and new covenant. And so in all of their writings, they lay out what becomes later under Constantine, Christian dogma. This is when they they are not circumcised, they don't follow the same dietary laws, all of that. This went on for about a hundred years. There were debates in all the, the communities. If you want to look at this, look at Paul's letters. I mean, he's constantly arguing about this stuff, but it was to get them that same exemption And Rome also is very conservative. They hated new religions. And so that's when one of the writers goes in and goes all the way through the Jewish scriptures. And because these guys were, if you're educated in the ancient world, you're educated in the schools of philosophy. So they used allegory. And that's when the guy whose name was Justin Martyr, he went through the Jewish scriptures and everywhere you saw God, he said, oh, here's what you don't understand. That was really a pre-existent form of Christ. We're not new. In other words, we're as old as Judaism. Okay, we're not a new religion. But we are. But God changed His mind. He punished them by allowing their temple to be destroyed, and we are now God's new chosen people. Unfortunately, all of that literature was saved. I mean, we could we. Could, afford to lose some of it. But that's what everybody used throughout the Middle Ages up through to the Nazis. That was their proof against the sins of the Jews. 
but I'm 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 doing an article on that. Now. Okay, well we look forward to to reading it when it's okay. when it's ready. <laughs> Trying to keep it simple. <laughs> Good luck with that. Okay, we have another question now from Brennan, who asked, uh, we're back to religious synchronism again. If religious yes. synchronism has been featured in many cultures, why have certain rulers, yes. particularly Akhenaten or Constantine, expressed preference over one particular deity or a pantheon? Wouldn't this alienate a majority of the citizens and so discontent? Yes. Okay, first of all, Akhenaten is greatly misunderstood. He became famous under Freud, <laughs> and the first, the Victorians that first went into Egypt, they found this guy that was promoting the worship of one god, monotheism, and there are all kinds of theories. Maybe that's where Moses got the idea, kind of thing. Here's the problem, though: Akhenaten forbid. I mean, he took down the temples of Amun Ra, the major dominant god at the time, and you know, in the New Kingdom. As far as we know, he didn't touch anything else. So he's always promoted as this great monotheist. He didn't stop the religious festivals all over the country, and they had hundreds of them, okay? And as far as we know, he didn't. The theory has always been that the priesthood at, at Luxor, at Thebes, was, was more powerful or something. And we don't know if he changed anything on the Egyptian afterlife, because he, the only art he left was his family worshiping the Aten, okay? All other tombs had, you know, the book of the day, everything all over the walls. So we don't really know how much he did or if it angered the Egyptians or anything like that. There's just so much we still don't know. Everybody's just made this assumption because, you know, for us, monotheism is good. That makes him a hero kind of thing. When Constantine converted, and again, I they just recently they just did the conversion of Constantine in the encyclopedia. He wasn't stupid. <laughs> He's always been criticized because when he converted in 312, he didn't outlaw all of the rest of the religions. But he has this huge empire to run. He really can't go up against, you know, all of that. But he did favor the Christians. If everyone anyone ever wonders why churches get tax exemptions. Constantine started that, okay? He gave the, the Christians tax breaks, you know, and promoted them in, in d different, you know, offices of the magistrates. It, it's, it, it's going to remain a debatable item, okay? Did he just see the winds of change coming? Also, when you look at the, when you talk about the Christianization, the Roman, you know, of the, the whole change of the Roman Empire from the time, that time on, how much does the fact that He's the emperor, and if you have half a brain, you want to get ahead, you're going to go with the emperor. And don't forget, he's got the legions with him. So all of those different factors have to be centered into it. I hate this term, and we need a new word. Somebody out there create a new word, paganism, okay? It did survive all over the place. Up through the late antiquity and into the Middle Ages, it still survives now. We've just made it, you know, uh, a derogatory kind of term, and we associate it with, you know, sex, drinking, and Satan worship kind of thing. But he was able to fuse many of the elements together, but he has this whole empire to run. And there really wasn't that big a reaction. There's one emperor that followed him, but he only ruled for three years. He's, he's called just <laughs> Julian the Apostate. Because he wanted to bring, the, he was Constantine's grandson, but he wanted to bring the empire back <laughs> to, 
to the original, but he got shot by an arrow somewhere in Persia. But yeah, so he's, he's the great apostate. But again, you have to consider all of those different cultural elements. There, and again, there are dozens and dozens of books. Um, I, I reviewed one where economics studies on the Roman Empire and how much or how little Christianity, you know, fused with that kind of thing. So there's there's always a lot of material out there, and we still can't really make hard decisions on it. Okay, but he did. He certainly did not set out to anger the majority of his empire. He just, you know, and again, did he see the writing on the wall? Did he think that it was going to be the next big thing? We're not really sure. His first concern was empire-wide unity. And that's when there was a famous book written called The Decline and Fall of the Catholic Church. (laughs) And what happened was when Constantine converted, all the Christian bishops were involved in a family feud because in, in the last persecution, some bishops had actually did the pinch of incense and turned over the Jewish scriptures to be burned. And so the church was divided. Should you forgive or should you condemn them to hell? And it was literally half and half, okay? And I I always remind my students, I said, you know, what should the bishops have done? And I get nothing from them. And I'll say, didn't I hear this word forgiveness somewhere in the gospels? (laughs) And they go, oh. (laughs) That's when they call upon Constantine. They're kind of toadying up. Could you make the decision what to do? That's when the the Roman emperor now becomes head of the church. And so it is literally in in the same functions there. And and Constantine wants unity. So forgive everybody, start over, clean slate. Okay? One empire, one emperor, one church. For 300 years... There were dozens of different Christianities on every street corner because before the Vatican, there was no central authority. Actually, before Constantine, there was no central authority. And so he that's what he's really looking for is union. And it's incredibly clever, as you say. So in fact, it's actually right. the opposite of what Brennan was saying about right. alienating. As you say, it's actually trying right. to bring as right. many people together. And yes. this is what I loved about the Romans actually in that when they took over a lot of the Middle East, they built all their cities exactly the same. So you could turn up and yes. you'd know where the main street was, where the main temples were. Right. They were very clever. They, they really were right. on top of it, I think. Right. That was the genius of Augustus. I'm not a fan of Augustus, but he knew what yeah. to do. Now we have an anonymous question, and they are asking, were there other Messiah figures like Jesus before or after him that didn't succeed in spreading their message? Yes, many. You never heard of them because Jesus had a better fan club. <laughs> They're one of our greatest resources for this period are the writings of a Jewish guy named Flavius Josephus. And he's infamous among Jews because when the Romans were besieging Jerusalem, he changed sides. And he became best friends with the emperor's son, Titus, who actually destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And then he went, he retired to Rome, and that's where he left all of these writings. We have Christians to thank, because famously, he has a a paragraph on John the Baptist. He's not an eyewitness. He was born in the year 36. But for not only the history of Israel, but the history of Rome, 
it goes up to the year 100. He is, and he's an eyewitness to the siege of Jerusalem. And that's, you can, by the way, all of his books now are classics. It's called The Jewish War. You can get, you know, all of the stuff in the bookstores. The problem is, uh, he's basically a toady. <laughs> and he presents Judaism in its best light, because it's, it's those rotten zealots that decided to revolt against Rome. Not the rest of us. We're all good citizens kind of thing. But the thing is, without him, we would know so little. And so what we do is we pick and choose. When Josephus agrees with my theory, he's wonderful. When he doesn't, then, well, you know, bias. Yeah, we, we all use it the same way. And that's where you can find these, these different stories. Because he has a 20-volume set called The Antiquities of the Jews, where he starts with Adam and Eve and goes all the way up to, to the first century. And what happens is that there were three major religious festivals, pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem. Okay, the biggest was Passover, and then Sukkot, and then in the fall, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this would be the occasion when what we call Jewish firebrands, these Messiah-type figures, would go there specifically to rev up the crowd. Because Israel had suffered both under Greek invasion, well, the Maccabees threw out the Greeks, but then Rome came right along. It was the same old thing, and everybody hated Rome. And so you would use this opportunity to whip up the crowds that the prophets of Israel had always said that sometime in the future, God would intervene in human history one more time and take care of all of this stuff. The shortcut for the list of the things that were supposed to happen, it's when, when Mark introduced Jesus on the stage of history, what's the first line? What did Jesus teach? Everybody thinks it's the golden rule. No, that's, that's in the Jewish Bible. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that this is the time for intervention. But before Jesus, there had been dozens of these guys, several of them we know about. Like, And they would come and say, one of the guys came into the temple and said, come on, we're all going to go up on the Mount of, Olive, Mount of Olives, and we're all going to shout just like they did at Jericho and bring down the power of Rome kind of thing. Another guy did these symbolic crossings of the River Jordan for the Red Sea miracle kind of thing. Now, what was Rome's response? Rome did not care what any of these people said, as long as they just had themselves. It's the mob. The minute you get a following, that's when Rome has to do something. And Rome is all about law and order. So Rome would send in a SWAT team, pick up the leader, as many followers, and, and execute them all. And in fact, I mean, and that's most likely what happened with Jesus. The crowd, if you believe Mark, that praised him for being the Messiah from the house of David as he came into the city, it's the crowd that probably got him killed. There is only one kingdom, and that's Rome. So that's why, but you've never heard of it. The Christians were just more successful, probably because what happened to the rest of them when their followers died, nobody picked up, you know, the, the article. And by the way, uniquely, none of their followers ever claimed that those guys had ever been risen from the dead. But this was the impetus, the, the story, the belief now. And so Christians took it out to the other cities, which the followers of these other guys never did. That's why they're lost. Now, famously in the second century, 135, a Jewish leader by the name of Bar Kokhba. The Jews didn't learn the first time. They decided to rebel against 
Adrian again. It's known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, and that's when they really lost out. It was guerrilla warfare, you know, just like the Maccabees. And now a famous rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, claimed that he was, in fact, the Messiah that God had raised up. But they lost big time. When I say big time, that's when all Jews were forbidden to ever live in Jerusalem. And I, I have this image in my head that as soon as Hadrian announced this, <laughs> you find Christians at the gates of Jerusalem with their suitcases. Because <laughs> literally, that's when Christians moved in and took over, quote, the holy sites. The, fir- the earliest Christian community that got there were the Armenian Christians. And in fact, they have their own quarter in the old city of Jerusalem today because they claim pride of place. We got here first. And they, they have a school and a, and a cathedral there and everything else. So that's when Christians began to take over. Okay. The Jews finally settled. And that's when and you begin what we call rabbinic Judaism. And it's like, okay, the temple's gone. We can't really live out our customs the same way. We're going to focus on studying our scriptures, our book, the Torah. And so it sort of goes, it develops from there. So it's sort of like that turning point. And it's that background of the Bar Kokhba revolt that the church fathers start setting up that adversos literature and things like that. There's a famous dialogue written by a second century church father called Justin Martyr. Let's guess how he died. He claim, it's called the dialogue with Trypho the Jew. And Trypho, we don't think he's a real guy, but um, he, he's a recent refugee from this latest revolt in 140 in Rome. And that's when Justin sits down and that's when he does the allegory and how the scriptures really belong to Christians because Jews no long, no, don't know how to interpret them correctly. And that's when he sets up, you know, all of that stuff. So it's a, it's a real turning point. But again, the, the followers of all these other guys didn't have good PR skills. No one ever claimed they had been risen from the dead. People forget. I mean, that, that was a good selling point. I also teach another course called Death in the Mediterranean World. It's a survey of all the views of, of afterlife and funeral rituals. So we do a lot of ritual studies in those classes. People should know funeral rituals are the hardest to change. I mean, they take the longest. Everything we do today and our funeral, that's all based in the ancient world. It's where all those ideas come from. Okay, even the idea of eco-friendly coffins. I mean, they had that then too. Okay, you have to imagine it's you know even the educated men who could maybe scoff at the idea of of existence after death, but nobody knew for sure, and that was one of the great selling points of Christianity. They guaranteed you a good afterlife, and in a world with earthquakes and disasters and wars and famines. That was an incredible selling point. Thank you, Rebecca. I call it the just-in-case theory. <laughs> and I, I run into so many students out there that they don't believe all of that heaven-hell stuff, you know. And I say, okay, but you should know, you know, you should know the options just in case. <laughs> I have so many students that tell me they don't believe in hell, that they think that God is a God of love and forgiveness. And I always tell, I said, no. I said, I, I need hell. I said, we all need help. What you need to understand about even the ancient concepts of the afterlife, they're not so much the deed. It's the idea that we have this almost human need 
for justice. You know, why does my evil neighbor get the lottery, but I'm starving <laughs> and I'm good, okay? <laughs> so if there's no justice here, at least the hope that there is justice in the next life of some form. And it was the ancient Egyptians, by the way, who invented that idea in the Middle Kingdom. That's when we get these wonderful texts about the what you do in this life determines your next life reward and punishment and then then the whole mediterranean basin picks it up you know from there and again i need hell i am not sharing my cloud with hitler okay i need to know that there is some kind of justice or punishment so i don't i i think hell's going to be more interesting than heaven anyway <laughs> Okay, so Pedro Arana asks, why do new religions seem to build up or to combine from existing ones? It's cultural. Mm. We all we separate church and state. <laughs> we really don't in our country, but I mean, look at our money. It says in God we trust. You can't separate religious ideas from the society that creates them. Okay, and so all of that stuff's going to be brought into it. It's how you validate or justify, quote, the things you can't claim to believe. I always have to go over this with that word myth, okay? In, in our culture, if you say something's a myth, that means it's not true. That's not the way the ancients understood it. A myth explains things, but it has nothing to do with the past. Myths explains how we got from A to B. Where did gender roles come from? Why do we do the things we do? And again, you can never verify a myth by its very nature. You know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, they're all presented that way. But what they're doing is actually explaining contemporary culture. Because again, culture and religion, that if you want to call them values, we don't call them religious ideas anymore. We call them values. It's the same thing. Okay. They're all embedded in there. And you have to explain why it is we do the thing. You know, everyone brings up the famous democracy of Greece and Solon's laws kind of thing. He starts out those laws by saying he received them from the gods, and that's why you have to obey them, okay? So you have that, that traditional cultural element embedded there. Now, you can have different, different city-states could have different laws, but by claiming they come from the gods, that's why you have to obey. You don't, it, when you're trying to sell a package, you don't go up against the dominant culture, okay? That's, you're re really not going to get very far. This is one of the great uh, changes, again, with the, the early church fathers that we see in, in Christianity. Anyone who has ever read Paul's letters, Paul thought he was living in the last generation. He literally thought the entire universe was going to be transformed when Christ returned to earth kind of thing. And he has that famous, what I call his, his famous chariot bumper sticker, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Well, they didn't get too far on most of those. <laughs> you will notice that Paul mentions women apostles, women teachers, healers, prophets, okay? Women had roles in the, that first generation of Christians, but it lasted 10 minutes because by the second century, the problem was Jesus did not return. Okay, <laughs> they kept saying, oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. He did not return. And so by the time you get to the second century, 
that's when they settle down and they're in for the long haul. Yes, eventually Jesus is going to come back. That's what Christians refer to as the second coming. And then everything the prophet said would happen, which didn't happen when he was here. <laughs> but in the meantime, you are to live proleptically as if the kingdom were here. And that's the church. And that's when they set up hierarchy and rules for living to get us through until you get there. And that's when they're, tr look, they're trying to convince Rome not to throw them to the lions. We're all good citizens just because we don't worship your God, but we, we don't, we're not lawbreakers. We're all great citizens kind of thing. That's when they ultimately take on the dominant culture. We're just like you. And that's when the church fathers absorb what were dominant Greco-Roman ideas concerning women. That's when women lose all leadership roles unless they give up being, quote, a woman. Virgins, okay? No longer the traditional role of wife or mother. It's only when you stop being a woman, then you could have some standing because then it's considered a sacrifice uh, to devote yourself to God. And that's why there are no more women leaders by the year 150. It would be a hard sell if you went up against all of that. You've got eons of, of gender roles. and it, Gender is socially constructed, okay? And they picked up all those bad ideas that women are seductive. And that's, that's when poor Eve gets, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that's when you start getting the writings that Eve seduced Adam, because that's what women do. And they really, you know, began to vilify her. One of the church fathers actually said, because of Eve, even the son of God had to die. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a hard burden. to be, And we're still living with it. Okay. We are still living with it. Sorry, there's so many things I could say to that, but I won't. I'll just. I'm just <laughs> That's a whole yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to move on to that. Because if we get into agenda thing. Right. Okay. Slightly unusual question now from Ayabanus. He says, I have been searching for a famous character during the Christian era in Egypt that was suffering from any kind of disability. And despite his disability, he became famous or had an impact during this period. So do you know of anyone who would fit the bill for Aya? Not off the top of my head. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say that for years I shared my office with a professor that, who teaches orthodoxy and Orthodox Christianity and stuff. In my one course, I do cover the period known as the Desert Fathers. Most people aren't aware of this. Monasticism, monasteries, monks and nuns, actually began in Egypt. Everyone thinks it's Benedict in Europe, but he studied the, the, the places in Egypt. So did Augustine, by the way. Anthony of Egypt. And there's a very, very famous book written at the time. It was a hot bestseller called The Life of Anthony. Okay, it's sold off the racks, and it's about the formation of, of how the monasteries became developed. You need to understand that after Constantine, you couldn't be a martyr anymore. You couldn't die for your religion. <laughs> so we now have living martyrs, and that's what the, the monastics become. And so you have story, Anthony went out and lived in the cave. He, he's fleeing from, actually not society, he's fleeing from church feuds. <laughs> And he lives in a cave, and when people go out to see him, he's got scars because he's been wrestling with the devil. It's like they, the monks believe you, you tame the urges of the body, all of that kind of stuff. There could be people mentioned in there, but the best resource for this would be 
the, the Coptic Christian church in Egypt is its own form of Christianity. And it actually begins in the, in the first and second centuries. They claim that the writer of the Gospel of Mark actually came to Alexandria and founded Christianity there. And they've got incredible websites. They've got all kinds of teaching. But also in, in all of these writings known as the Desert Fathers, there may be individuals that overcame some of those kind of handicaps. But the biggest handicap that they're going to write about and teach about, uh, the two biggest temptations for desert monks were sex and food. <laughs> they would have dreams of... <laughs> They, they really went into this, what we call asceticism, never indulging the needs of the body. You just basically live on a grain of rice and some water kind of thing. But the, the devil would come at night and torture that, you know. So you see a lot of how to discipline the body and overcome that stuff. So there's going to be a lot of body literature in those writings. But you just have to start searching out, see how it goes. That's great. Thank you. Hopefully he can find somebody. So Charles Manuel would like to know how and why the Hebrew language was lost during the time of the Babylonian captivity. It wasn't really lost. <laughs> when the, okay, for, the, for everybody else, the, the time of the uh, captivity, after the, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in 722, and then 100 years later, the Babylonians come along, destroy the Assyrians, and then they destroy Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And they cart off the leadership, the priests, the educated, the aristocrats, and take them to their capital city of Babylon. And that's why Babylon becomes a metaphor for the evil oppressor kind of thing. And they will be there until Cyrus the Great, the Persian, eventually conquers Babylon. And he's the one that lets them go back. And then they build, they rebuild the temple. And that's known as the Second Temple. The, what we call the common language in that area was what we call Aram, and then later, that's what we're, that's where we get the term Aramaic from. And Aramaic is actually written in Hebrew letters, but it's a different kind of dialect. But it was like the, the language of commerce, trade. It was sort of like a language that all these different cultures in these vast empires, you know, could share. And so when they come back and rebuild Jerusalem, that's what they were used to using and speaking. Now, what's hard to pin down and again, we, we have a lot of assumptions, but without a lot of evidence. We assume Hebrew was still being taught when people learned Torah, learned to study Moses. We assume it was still being used in the temple. It's difficult to verify, <laughs> you know, a lot of this. Keep in mind, the temple priests, we don't have any writings, okay? A couple priests, they're written in the, uh, the, the two guys who, who led them back to rebuild Ezra and Nehemiah, they each have their own books in the Bible, and they're, quote, they were former priests under Solomon's temple kind of thing. But very little of this writings of any of this stuff have survived. It's kind of shocking. I, when the temple was destroyed by Rome, there's only one set of writings that have survived from a Pharisee that we have, and it's Paul. A little bit skewed. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah, the people who ran the temple were destroyed by Rome. They died in the fires. Essenes at Qumran were wiped out by the Roman legions. I mean, so in terms of what the average Jew knew in terms of Hebrew is very difficult to assess. We just need to find more scrolls and more writing. Now, yes, they used Hebrew at Qumran, but they also used Greek and Aramaic. <laughs> okay, the, the consensus is that Jesus living in the Galilee, because 
What happened after Assyria conquered the Northern Kingdom, they conquered the Galilee and they traded populations. So they're speaking Aramaic in the Galilee. How much Hebrew did Jesus know? We There's no way, because we don't know what, we don't even know how much Aramaic he knew. Because again, here's another shocker. Jesus never wrote anything down and neither did his disciples. The four gospels are not written by eyewitnesses. That's the hardest hurdle for people to get used to, okay? And they're writing in what we call street Greek or Koine Greek, which everybody used all over the Mediterranean basin. It's difficult. It's difficult. But there are a lot of books out there. Get ready to dive into philology and the study of of languages and all that kind of stuff as well. It's fascinating because you just don't know what's going to be found. Well, thank you very much for that, Rebecca. Actually, going back to the monasteries and thinking about food and sex, I was just thinking the other day, (laughs) as you do, why do you think that the early church fathers were so pro-celibacy and chastity for the bishops and other church leaders? And why do you think that sex got such a bad name and it was only supposed to be used for procreation? Do you think that liberal sex would really have undermined the religion? (laughs) I, you know what? I think there's. I think I did one of the articles on this. Yeah, and, and look in the encyclopedia. I, I've I've been doing several because I need a break from my other stuff. I call this a break because they're fun. Again, you've got these ancient views on women. First and foremost, women are the property of men. They're the property of their father, and then they become the property of their husband. That's why you have marriage contracts. Okay. I remind people, you know, everybody thinks adultery is premarital sex. No, adultery in the Bible is the violation of another man's property. Always think property law, you know, with these kinds of things. And it's because they didn't have DNA tests, okay? You always had to protect, keep the woman, you know, sheltered because you had to be, you know, sure of the bloodline. But at the same time, remember, we only have the upper quadrant here. If you are writing, you are educated, but you couldn't go to a college and major in something. You were educated in the school of philosophy. And philosophers always had a problem with sex. Again, in, in, in terms of sociology, we have several that apply to the ancient world. One of them is what we call honor-shame. Your public rep, your public persona was everything. That's what gave you honor. And part of that was the idea that you were constantly in control. They literally had these handbooks like why you shouldn't get angry and beat your slave. Apathia, controlling the emotions. This is why men don't cry. And this is why you don't, you know, kind of thing. And this is how the church fathers were all educated. And one of the things that many of the schools of philosophy had in common was they really focused on control, mind over matter. That's what many of the teachings of Plato were, you know, this kind of, that you work on your, your soul, your mind. Don't let your body and the urges of your body control what you do. And one of the things they all resented, I don't know if there's a delicate way to do this, was sexual intercourse. And the problem was, once you are aroused, you cannot control it. You can't stop it. Do you ever feel a sneeze coming on? You try to stop it and try to stop it. But the minute the sneeze starts, you can't, it can't be interrupted. Now, this doesn't mean I'm saying that human intercourse is like a sneeze. <laughs> It's that same feeling of helplessness, and they hated that. And so they came 
they belittled it and don't let it lead your life and, and work on your mind and try to control all of this stuff. And this is how the church fathers were educated. They came into the game not liking sex. However, remember what I said about they're trying to convince Rome not to throw them to the lions, <laughs> okay? And so what they are going to do is take on the same Greco-Roman ideas of gender and different roles and things like that. And with this background in philosophy, they like everybody else. Women had one role that was recognized, procreation. And the church father, they're not stupid. The church has to grow. So yes, you, you, but it can, you can only have sex now within marriage. And guess what? Only one way, okay? They declared it a necessary evil. Remember, they, they know their Bible. They're stuck. God's first commandment in Genesis is be fruitful and multiply. Go out and have sex, right? But he's saying, they're saying, that here's the, the problem. You should only do it for procreation. And again, now we look to ancient medical knowledge, okay? The belief was that the only way to get pregnant was on your back. Now, please, our audience out there, th that's not true. <laughs> okay? So, please take precautions. Okay? I hope we've learned something since then. But the church then ordered the only way you could have sex was the woman on the bottom and the man on top. What do we call that position? The missionary position. Why? Because in the colonial period, when Christian missionaries went to Africa and Asia and saw people having sex on the dining room table and up on the chandelier, whatever. No, 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 no. Only, only in this position, because they thought that's the only way a woman could get pregnant as the, the incubator. They, they believed every, all, all personality traits were in the semen. The woman was an incubator only, the fetus. And by the way, if, if the woman did something wrong and the fetus didn't cook too long, then you would come out as a as a female. Where do you think Freud got the idea? The clitoris is the little tiny undeveloped penis. Something went wrong in the uterus and gave you a girl instead of a boy. Ain't, oh, if you, listen, if you really want to hoot, we've got two medical books written on gynecology by Galen and uh, Serranus. They're, they're wonderful. Galen was the one that said that, and, and again, you know, I have another favorite saying, there's nothing new under the sun. They knew about PMS then. They just didn't know what to call it. Galen said it's because once a month the, the uterus gets vapors and starts moving through a woman's body and goes into her brain and she gets hysterical. That's where the word hysteria comes from. Okay. <laughs> it's very enlightening. <laughs> that's when they controlled. And that's when sex literally, I mean, you have, this is one of those, I can't say this phrase anymore, Kodak moment. I don't know, digital moment, whatever. Okay. This is one of those turning points in history. In the entirety of the ancient world, sex was never a sin. Sex itself, look throughout the Jewish scripture. Nobody, and everybody enjoy, you know, we think they overindulge. Their attitudes were different than ours. But Christians, for the, this is one of the great changes they'll make. Sex becomes a sin, but necessary to grow the church. But nevertheless, that's when it becomes a sin. It never existed in the ancient world in that, with that kind of understanding. Do you think one of the attractions of Christianity was the idea that ancestry and bloodlines were no longer relevant? And that is a quote taken from your article in WHE. That did help. Mm. That did help. They made it portable and no longer in the blood. Mm. And again, that's why when we use modern words like conversion or, you know, the, no, you, 
you're born into your family clan, and that includes the gods. And in order to drastically change that, you're actually talking about a change in lifestyle. But at the same time, one of, and if we want to go back to Augustus, one of the things when he, the great difference between the Republic and then the early empire, empire means central authority. So he, he controlled everything, you know, through Rome. And that meant moving populations. And this is when you have the great Latifunda plantations, as you were with slave labor. Well, you know, this means small farmers, small businessmen got put out of work. What do you do when you lose your farm? You move to the city, okay? And so there was a lot of movement. And besides, Rome had those wonderful roads, okay? And people traveled. And so the difference was that you could, you know, many harbors offered temples and shrines to thousands of different deities. But now you could go anywhere and have your, your quote, religion with you, whereas, and you, didn't, and you didn't need to worry about the cost of a sacrifice or, you know, uh, paying for the, the temple the ties or anything like that. And that was a great benefit, really. Um, it, it, like I said, it made it almost like a portable religion. Now, the downside to that, and um, this is where we really wish more things had survived. Um, again, when, you know, you see a lot of things in the Gospels. The Gospels contain a lot of sayings of Jesus. They're called um, the hard sayings of Jesus. There are whole books on the stuff we don't like. Um, you know, like um, <laughs> when someone asks Jesus, what do I do to get eternal life? He said, you know follow me because I got to bury my parents. No, come now or forget it. Um, <laughs> the line where Jesus says, this is what people really don't like. In order to follow me, you have to hate your mother and your father. And everybody goes, oh, oh whoa, how did that get in there? You know, you kind of ignore that one. No, no, no. It's Remember, this isn't Jesus saying these things. It's the writers. What they're telling you is by the time you get to the Gospels and their communities, this is going to divide families. That's what's meant by that. Hard times ahead, because you're going to have to make a choice. Because remember, religion permeated everything, okay? The minute you woke up in the morning, there were family gods and goddesses at the hearth. Every meal recognized them. They were Again, they were involved in everything. And so... You literally were going to have to make a break with your your traditional family. And again, we would love to have writings about this. You know, I'd love to see some of those family feuds or, you know, the teenager that runs away to be a Christian kind of thing, you know, and, and what's going on locally. Okay. But that's what all of that is about. Because again, it was it was literally in the blood. And that is one of the, the big changes that Christianity made. But it was a hard decision. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me today on WHE's podcast series, Experts on History. It's been a real pleasure. Delightful meeting you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.